0: Hey there, I'm Jake Humphrey, and you're listening once again to High Performance, our gift to you for free every single week. This is the podcast that reminds you that it's within. Your ambition, your purpose, your story, it's all within. We just help you unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So right now, allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes to speak to the greatest leaders, thinkers, sports stars, entrepreneurs, and in this case, chefs on the planet so they can be your teacher and remember this is not a podcast about being a chef this isn't a podcast even about high achievement or high success as you're about to hear this is a podcast about high happiness high self-worth this is all about taking someone else's experience and failings and struggles and successes and using them to take you closer to a life of fulfillment empathy and understanding
1: today this awaits you. I've made some massive mistakes in my cooking career. But if I've messed up a service, or I've I've may have cut a corner, or I've not done things right, whatever it may be, there's only one person you've got to deal with, and that's the man in the mirror. You've got to look at yourself. Before you can start judging everyone else around you, I handed my notice into the Savoy. Anton Adelman laughed at me, said you won't survive. That was just what I needed. There was the the fodder for me to feed off because that chef said to me that kitchen's too tough for you and you won't survive in there. I don't want to stop. I still want to be a high achiever and I still want to be a high performer in in everything I do. You know, when I think about this
0: conversation that we had with Marcus Waring, who is one of the most celebrated and successful chefs in the world, um, I just have two words that stand out for me. And you're about to hear an entire conversation about love and about passion. His very first answer when we ask him what high performance means to you um is really emotional and i think you will learn a lot from the conversation that you're about to hear and when it comes to passion i think it's important that we realize that passion isn't always an easy route through and there's all this popular conversation now on social media about find your passion live your passion focus on your passion the way i like to look at this is actually that passion is just about caring deeply about the things that you do and you can't have intense passion for every part of your life you know there will be parts of your life that you don't love deeply but i think it's important that the central focus of your life is something that you love deeply and marcus waring has a real love and a passion for being a chef for being a leader for building a team for taking people with him on the journey but the important thing about being a passionate person is that actually Passion often can lead you down a road where you make errors, where you make mistakes, because you care so deeply about things. Um, And often passion can mean that you're impulsive in your decisions and your reactions. And you're going to hear a really interesting conversation with Marcus today about how passion has given him so much, but also about how at times... You know, real strong, deep passion has caused problems along the way. Um, I can't thank Marcus enough for his honesty. I've never heard him speak like this on any interview that he's ever done before. Um, and it was a real pleasure that he came on High Performance and shared this with us. So I really hope that you enjoy this. I hope you get a lot from it. I hope you learn a great deal. Thank you, as always, for the hundreds of messages we're getting every single week from people telling us that this podcast is changing their lives. And I hope this episode In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style
2: game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods
0: Well, Marcus, thank you so much for joining us on High Performance. It's an absolute pleasure to meet you and to welcome you. Let's start with that question then. In your mind, what is high performance?
1: There's only one word I can use for that. That's dad. My dad. Uh, A man that set a pace of work and a work ethic and a mindset that I've not quite ever seen in anyone else that I've ever met. Uh, My old man's still alive. He used to smoke 40 fags uh, a day, uh, drink gallons and gallons of tea. But he had a work ethic like no one else i'd ever worked with before and it was this precision um, of that question um, of high performance high performance i think can come in many different ways um, it's it's how you see high performance what is high performance for me where i come from the northwest high performance was how good and how hard can you work or whatever it is that you do and the the the, the time i spend with him that influence from the age of 11 when I finished school at three 30 and I was in the warehouse at quarter to four. Um, and I was there every weekend and every holiday spending time with my dad because my dad was a workaholic. So seven days a week, he was at that warehouse, 16, 17, 18 hour days. Um, Sunday was a 12 hour day where he did his bookkeeping and that was my dad's half day. So that for me is what high performance was all about my dad.
0: And that's an interesting answer because we've had people sit where you are now and talk about the fact that their parents were workaholics in a negative sense rather than a positive sense. But it's, it seems like you don't hold a bitterness that you didn't go to the football with your dad or take the dog for a walk or go on three week family holidays or whatever. Yeah. You hold a real gratitude for the fact that he put a work ethic into you that's carried you.
1: I wouldn't be sitting here today if, 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 if that wasn't there. And so what people think you miss out on is only what you, they think you miss out on. I missed out on nothing. Now, I saw a very powerful, strong man with very basic thinking of life. That, that, that set me up for life. And so I, I look back with, with gratitude and respect. What I won't do necessarily is following his footsteps in some of the things that he missed out on. And the one key thing that he missed out on was that when he eventually retired because his business collapsed, on a, and that was a good note because I think that's probably what saved his life because he couldn't stop. Um, his children had all grown up and left and he hadn't spent any time with them. So in the life that I have lived, I've spent time with my children and those I brought I wanted to get married when I felt it was right for me personally and I wanted to have children because it felt right that I could do something with them and look after them and have a job that was secure and that allowed me to bring them into the world and give them what I believed was, you know, a good upbringing, And I've done that and I'm still doing that today. But I played a very clever role or how I look at it as a clever role of how when I when they came into my life how I worked around what my wife and my children's expectations were um, and the way I live. There was one thing that I I said to my uh, girlfriend, fiancé, wife, that's the same person, and that is never, ever, ever ask me to be anything else apart from chef. I'm a chef through and through. If you cut me in half, it'd say cook. So what was your dad's business then, Marcus? My dad was a fruit and spud man. He bought fruit and potatoes in the northwest, Liverpool, uh, Preston, um, all through the Sefton area. He brought them back to a warehouse all through the farms in, 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 in Southport um, and he brought them in. He sold them on to shops, hotels uh, and restaurants but mostly school meal services was where he sold his produce to. So he was a wholesaler and then he distributed it out. But some of the great memories of working there were brilliant. You know, working with workmen, going on wagons, going to Preston, going to Liverpool Market. There's nowhere quite like Liverpool Market in the 80s and 90s when you you know you really do meet the heart and soul of a city like Liverpool. And that's where you start to see how small the world you live in when you live in a church town Southport, and which is where I'm from, a seaside town. And so that was the first introduction to a big place, big world, big city. And it scared the life out of me. So I used to go back to my dad's warehouse feeling secure and feeling that I was in the right place. And that was my job. I wanted to take over and work for my dad. Um, and there was a big change in in one day in my life where I think around the age of fourteen, my dad said to me, um, <clears throat> on the back of a wagon parked outside the warehouse, we were, we were messing around with some spuds, moving them around. And he said, "You're not, you're not coming into the business, mate. You, you, you need to go and find a new career." And I absolutely couldn't understand why he said that. I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "This business is knackered. It's over. Forget it. You're not coming in. Find something else." There's only one other thing I could do, and I was already doing it. Cook. My brother was a chef. He was my biggest mentor alongside my father. I was seven years my senior, boxer, cook, and I did both of those things, you know, side by side. And so the boxing ring for me was a place of in, being an individual where I didn't need to rely upon anyone. Uh, and uh, being the work ethic that I have, I, I felt an, that I was an individual everywhere I was because I just had this mindset of focus on what I was doing. And that, that that for me was, you know, a huge game changer. And working in kitchens was interesting.
3: So what did boxing teach you then that... You still utilize today.
1: Don't rely on anyone around you, which is the worst thing you can do when you're supposed to be a leader. Boxing is an individual sport. You rely upon yourself. There's a team around you, but that team around you can't step into those ropes. They're pretty much on the outside. And it's only when you realize in boxing, the team is so important that you put around you, the trainer, your family. But the minute you step through that rope, throw the ropes, it's a different ball game. And that's where you feel alone. You feel scared. You think I'm going to get hit. And you just go at it. You know, I spent most of my youth or a lot of it, you know, in a boxing ring in Liverpool men's clubs, you know, where the ring is almost touching the roof and that's full of smoke and cigars and and a lot of beer being drunk and loved it, loved it. Tough, tough, tough times being brought up to box. But yet you didn't really feel part of the sport. You felt very much at the sideline of it. And when you ended up in the
0: kitchens, how similar was the mindset to working in those kitchens? Did you have this... A boxer's mindset: of I need to deliver here, or I'm going to get knocked out.
1: Yeah, well, without a doubt. Being in the kitchen, my first big job was at the age of 18 when I came to London to work at the Savoy. I came. I worked at the Scaggs Hotel in Southport, Law Street, where my brother was a chef, and it was just full of characters. I mean, proper characters. There's like seven eight chefs, and it was just fun. It, it was a, it was a fantastic job for, for my brother. Um, for me, it was just the beginning of of, of something something new, and I I I, I got. The opportunity to come work in London through a competition I did when I was at Southport Catering College. Uh, and that judge who saw me in this competition opened the door to the, probably the biggest door of my life, which was London, which I couldn't probably, I think at the age of 17, 18 or 16, 17, if you'd asked me to point to London on a map, probably couldn't have done that. But here I, here I am and there I was. And that was a game changer for me. 120 chefs worked in that kitchen. And I got put into a position of a basic chef. And within a month, I was already promoted to running a section. It was way bigger than me, but I could work faster and better than anyone else around me. And that was a bit of a, some tough years in front of me because of that fact. And that's something I felt quite, it's quite hard to deal with that, to be honest with you. The only way I could deal with it was just to work, 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 work.
3: So one of the great things that, or one of the great truisms of boxing is that there's levels, that some people are just at different levels where you're operating. So when you've come down to London as a chef, how... Appreciative were you of the different kinds of levels of where you were operating, but where you could potentially get to.
1: There was no plan. <clears throat> there was no goal of I want to do this. I want to open a restaurant. I want to do xyz i was very basic in my thinking, and it was one job at a time. But the minute I stepped foot into the kitchen I worked in, within the first two or three days, I'd set a date of when I was going to leave, and then I was going to go on to the next job. I did never, I never knew what the next job was, um, but I set that goal of a year, two years, whatever it was to set myself a, a light that I had to go and reach. Where did you learn that from? I think it was my only way of dealing, of getting through it. I, I I really found London tough. I found it really cold, sharp, unfriendly, and dark. And I'd go to work, it was dark. I'd come home, it was dark. No one spoke to you. Sometimes in the kitchen, people wouldn't speak to you. And I didn't like it, because that's not where I'm from. Everyone's doing a brood, you want to this? how are you doing? You, know, you walk down the street and people would say hello to you. And I think that was my way of setting a a get out of jail card, basically, that if I get to that, I'm out of that jail. And I'm then going stupidly jump into another one, which was supposed to be an even tougher kitchen. But every time I felt any point where it was getting really difficult, I knew my dad was at the warehouse at 12 o'clock at night. So I'd get home from the kitchen and I'd pick up the phone on the payphone. He'd call me back and we'd have a chat. And sometimes what the key message was, you ain't coming back here, mate. You ain't coming back to Southport. I won't say what he said because it's too rude and too, too coarse, but there was no way that man would let me walk back, get back on that train and come back to Liverpool with Lime Street because he wouldn't pick me up. His point was, why do you want to come back to Southport when you're working in the best kitchen, one of the best kitchens in, in the country, if not the best hotel in the world? What what you go and work back at Skagebrook?
0: And at that point, right, if your dad had said, listen, son, get on the train, Come back home, we'll cook you a dinner. Maybe it isn't for you.
1: Would you have gone? No, I don't think so. Because then I'd know that I was just, I'd given up. No, there's just something about giving in that doesn't quite appeal to me, even from that young age.
3: But if we go back to your dad and his influence, so I get the like the leading by example that like you're him in him grafting all hours. What's the kind of nuggets of advice that he was giving you that gave you that grittiness to get through?
1: Don't give up. Work hard, be a good person, and look after your money. You know, look after yourself. You know, look after what you do. If you're going to work that hard, don't throw it all away. Don't be going down the pub and bevying it up or getting, you know, all the things he used to say. Don't be going going out and buying everyone around a round to drink see the wages that you work so hard. You see, if you want to go out, have a have a drink and then get out. Go on. Don't waste your time with with people who love beer. He always used to say that. Don't be going out socialising. And, and wasting time with, with with nobodies. Surround yourself with shite, you'll become shite. It's one of the things he'd say to you. And that, you know, he's right. And I, and, I, and, I, and I think he's, I love that about him. He's, you know, he's he's very direct and very coarse, but I think it's what's inside me. It's, it's what's under my skin.
3: So you find yourself going into these kitchens then where you're at the lowest level. So to take your dad's lessons that you're at the shite level, how did you identify, I want to get to... The next level like did you go and hang around with like chefs that were far ahead of you to go and pick their brains
1: no never i saw one or two in the kitchen that i'd say i'm going to get to where you are and i'd, I'd pinpoint a couple of people that i wanted to get to their level before i left that kitchen and I, I would identify them as you know as soon as i walked into the kitchen
3: and what would you do though to learn from them
1: just watch them simple as that look at them watch them make sure they're doing what you like see what they're all about, take what they've got on the table and add it to your arsenal of, of information. So stack it up, get it into the, into you know, make it your own, stick it on a shelf, train, 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 so take that information, that work ethic and, and stick it on a shelf. And then one day when you become a head chef, get it all down and then you make your own mark on the industry.
3: So give us an example of like one of the, early characteristics you'd have identified that you there's den- only, one, there's did only really
1: one person that stands out for me <laughs> and that was um so i worked i came to london i worked at the savoy um i did just just under two years and be- before the end i felt like i'd done my time uh and i wanted i set that day and i said to dad i don't really know where to go next i said but there is one kitchen i really remember from a tv show called texas cooks um, and it was about six of the greatest chefs in, in, in the UK at that particular time. And one of them was Alba Rue de Gavroche. I said, that's where you want to go. From a five-star hotel to a three-star Michelin, he's like flying from North Pole to South Pole, completely different places. Both cold, both got a pole, but go both completely different for for different reasons. And that's what came next. He said, well, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, well, I'm, I'm off tomorrow. He said, right, I want, you to do me, I want you to do me a favor. He said, I want you to get up, have a shower, have a shave. Put your best suit on if you've got one, get a jacket on and go and knock on their door. I said, Dad, you can't do that. He said, mate, will you just do that for me. That's Gavroche, mate. I can't go and knock on the Gavroche door. He said, well, you just fucking do it. Do it for me and see what happens next. So I did it. Knocked on the door. Michelle didn't come up. The head chef came up, uh, Mark Prescott, who happened to be from Wigan. So he's a northerner like me. He gave me time. I told him what I wanted. Two weeks later, I got a letter in the post offering me a job. Wow. I handed my notice in the Savoy. Anton Edelman laughed at me and said, you won't survive. That was just what I needed. There was the the fodder for me to feed off because that chef said to me, that kitchen's too tough for you and you won't survive in there. So what was the person I met? I walked in that kitchen on my very first day. I got walked to the vegetable section and there was a French chef there. And Michel introduced himself. He took me over there and said, you're going to be working with this chef. In a week, he's going to be leaving the section. Oh, by the way, he doesn't speak a word of English. He's French. Off you go. And I put my head down. I was given the section after a week, and I I entered Hell's Kitchen in my mind. And yet it was the most organized, perfect kitchen I'd ever worked in. Beautiful. But I just took a job that I wasn't ready for, and I survived. That day, I went home. I called my dad. He said, right, lad, what do you think? What was it like? I said, unbelievable. Clean. It's the service, the food, Michelle, Gavroche, mate. Brilliant. I said, but there's one person in that room, in that kitchen, that just stands out from the crowd, who's completely different from anyone else. This particular chef messes around, last one in, first one out. But at 12 o'clock and 6 o'clock, that particular chef became a cooking machine of pure focus and adrenaline. I said, that chef stands out from the other 23 chefs in the kitchen, even more so than Michel Roux. And he said, people like that, watch them, focus on them, and go with them. And that was Gordon Ramsay. Big change in my life, that, because he was a game changer in that kitchen. And obviously, he became a game changer in my career because that was the chef that stood out from any other chef I'd ever worked with. All the 110 chefs in the Savoy, another level.
0: And stood out in what way were you... In awe of him, impressed by him, confused by him, because you weren't going out and clubbing and partying and dancing
1: and having fun and then cooking. You were Mr. Single-Minded Determination, right? I was the opposite to him. Yeah. He was that. And Gordon was a people person. And he really had a star quality when it came to the food. I used to, He'd just spent three and a half years with Marco White at Harvey's, the rock and roll kitchen, the, the kitchen that was unlike no other in anywhere in this country that I'd ever seen, anyone had ever seen before. And so he came into Gavroche with that training, that tasting, that attention to detail, that perfection on the cutting of the fish, that brilliance supporting food on the plate, taste, taste, taste. You look around the kitchen, people aren't tasting food, they'll just go through a process. And that's the one thing that was a point of difference. So that was when, I I focused on him, I added that into my arsenal, just kept adding and adding and adding, just loved it. And mimic it, because he was mimicking Marco, Marco was, a, I never had the chance to work with Marco. That kitchen I was not ready for. So I went into Gavroche and saw someone who, who then left and then went to Paris. And strangely enough, we met up three years later uh, and I became the very first chef that he ever employed at, at the Aubergine.
0: And before we talk about life at the Aubergine with Gordon Ramsay, there's a great conversation here for people that feel that they're thrown into the deep end all the time and either self-doubt or imposter syndrome is the old enemy that creeps up and stops them in their tracks. You managed to, you either didn't have them, or if you did have them, you managed to quell them and keep them quiet. So what advice would you give to people for whom the self-doubt just sometimes can be crippling, and, and what you did at that period to,
1: um, to find, get through that? Find, find someone to lean on. You've got to find someone to talk to. You need to find, but whoever you find, whoever that person is in your life, you make sure that that person is a rock. So that rock that you can't budge, that you can lean on, that, you can, that can support you, don't find someone that's like you or someone that is, has failed before. Find someone. It could be a teacher. It could be a lecturer. It could be an aunt and uncle. It could be a granny, granddad, someone in your life. If there is one, if it's not someone that you know, go and go find a book. And who was it for you then? Was it still the phone calls to your 100%. dad? percent Oh, yeah. I'd never got through the regime without, without him.
0: And how, how was he so wise for a guy that sold fruit and
1: potatoes? No, he had no clue what
0: world I was in. No clue. But isn't that naivety in some ways is the... It's the magic, huh? Nice no, it's the
1: magic. That's the key. Basic values of life don't change. No matter how rich, how tall, how high you are, how big you think you are, basic value is still there. It's called foundation. This building we're standing, we're sitting in right here, is built on a foundation. This building could have been one storey tall or 38 storeys tall. It could have been even higher. But if the foundation is weak and soft and breakable, this building will collapse. And I think that's the same in us. Amazing. So you go into Aubergine
0: with Gordon Ramsay. What level did you go into that kitchen at? Sous chef. Okay. And how was that
1: experience? I was not ready for that. Um, I was never ready for any of the jobs I've just spoke to you about.
3: Did you set yourself a timescale again?
1: Uh, That's the one kitchen I had no clue where I was was walking into. And I was actually, I just stepped into Hell's Kitchen, the best kitchen, that better than Harvey's, it was super. And he was absolutely obsessed with it, possessed with perfection and work and customer service, you know, it was just take food to a whole new level. And I've not been in that position before because it, it was very, very different to Gavroche. Gavroche was an institution and it was set in its stone. It was set in its way. This was brand swanky new creative cookery at the highest level that was being recognised globally. That was why what made that place very, very different.
0: But now you're going to have to be quite self-deprecating because you saw him
1: and were impressed. He obviously saw you. And was impressed. We stayed in touch with Gavroche. We worked together for for a while, and then through that time, we 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 you know talk. He every now and again, you may go out to meet some you know go out for a bite to eat or something, or not really that much to be honest with you, because he was always trying to get people out to go and you know let's go and catch up after. But there's this unbelievable energy. You know, Gavroche gave us two days off a week. Other restaurants I'd ever worked in gave me less than that. And so there was this opportunity to catch up on a Saturday. And so there was sort of a, a colleague slash friend there. So when I went to work at the Aubergine, the friendship became boss and pupil. That was harder than was the job itself because I'd seen him laugh. and We'd had jokes. I'd been the butt of jokes in the kitchen. And that was like, whoa, he's serious. You know, I'm thinking, am I going into this? I didn't know how he was going to run that kitchen. I had no clue. I knew yeah. what a good chef he was, but I didn't realise he was, he was so focused and it, not the person I saw at Gavroche. A whole new level.
3: But it also sounds as well that, to use that football analogy, you've got somebody that's been a colleague in the dressing room that's now, you play a manager or a yeah. guy that's leading it, and that's a very different skill set. It
1: so is. It what is. were
3: you learning about leading a group of chefs rather
1: than being one of the chefs? I, I could have been his brother, Tom and Jerry, whoever you want, I could be anyone. But to him, I was just the sous chef, and I've got a job to do. And you'll follow me, and you'll do yours as you're told. Forget, forget that everything else. Park it to the side. Leave it on the on the touchline. Don't bring it onto the pitch. Don't bring it into the kitchen. And that's what I learned. And that's what I saw there. I sort of quite like that though. I did like it. I found it tough. But, mm-hmm. but, but but I get asked often, what on earth possessed anyone to go work in a place that was We were six days a week. We were 18-hour days because no one forced me to do it. We loved it. We all loved it, the people that got through it. And then I became that person. So I became this same ass in some sense because then I left and went to Paris. And I went to work at a restaurant called Guy Savoir, which is a three-star Michelin. And it was probably one of the easiest jobs I've ever had. Couldn't speak a word of French. Why? Because I was trained. Yeah.
0: And I it comes back to that great phrase that, you know, there were things that were hard for you at Aubergine, right? But what's hard for you isn't necessarily bad for you. No. Would you say you, you grew as a person as well as a chef
1: in this period in your life? When I walked into there, if you'd have read my CV, you'd have said competition winner, college first at everything, won every competition and came top in every single exam, which is not really what I was at school. But in catering college, I did a lot. So I got my head down and I focused. My CV said I was a very good, reliable, hardworking cook and a very good cook because that's that's what CVs do until you step in there and then you realise that your CV is just a piece of paper. What he wanted to find out was, who are you? What type of chef are you? So how did he test you? Every day, lunch, dinner, 12 o'clock, 6 o'clock, perfection. Get ready, here we go. And then you realise how average a chef you really are. So I was a championship footballer in that kitchen and I needed to be right at the very top of champions league. No way was I champions league.
3: So self-awareness is the first step of doing that. And I realized you've had like a, a pretty stark message. What were the kind of steps then that you made to get to that champions league level,
1: just head down, ride the punches. That's where the boxing comes into the equation and you, 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 you go with it and it was a school of education. Forget what people think it is. Forget what you hear. Forget what, uh, you know, the stories. They're just stories. What happened in that kitchen stays in that kitchen. And it is a kitchen of perfection and drive and ambition. And I love that.
3: But as somebody outside of your world, I've almost got this cartoon image of it screaming at each other and effing and blinding. Tell us what was it like where that education process The only was reason
1: happening. why anyone ever raises their voice in a kitchen is because someone is cutting a corner. Simple as that. And if I cut a corner and someone raises their voice at me, then so be it. I deserve it. And you've got to accept it. It's what it is. You know, if do you know what? If I often reflect back on life I think where would have been the best place for me? And I'd say it'd have probably been in the army. Because there is a discipline in my head that I that I seem to have. And I think I would have if I'd have been in the army, I'd have been I would have wanted to be in the Paris or in you know in the best. And I'd have strive to get to that. And that's where I look at that. You've got to have self-awareness. You have to identify who you are. I've made some massive mistakes in my cooking career. But if I've messed up a service or I have may have cut a corner or I've not done things right, whatever it may be, there's only one person you've got to deal with. And that's the man in the mirror. You've got to look at yourself before you can start judging everyone else around you. And that, was, that, that happened to me once where I had to realise that that person has to change. My, my management skills were appalling, absolutely appalling. I was a voice. I raised my voice. Um, I ran the kitchen as, a, as almost as an individual. I was a boxer. I'm from Southport. That's how it's who I was. I was a shy young lad in a world where I needed to communicate. And then I realized that you can't be a one-man band. When I came back from Paris, I was given the keys to a restaurant to run at the age of 25. That was unbelievable. The hardest thing I've ever done. Absolutely incredible. And it was Gordon that brought me back from Paris to open this restaurant. So the much publicised fallout
0: with Gordon Ramsay that you had, that was, was that at Aubergine or was that later when he brought you later back? Later on. That was What's later it? on. Because I think, you know, I've seen this spoken about elsewhere in a kind of a salacious way. And we're not really interested in a salacious or you had a row with no. another famous chef. But I think there was a really interesting story to tell here about the fact that sometimes in life, these things actually can be of value to everybody. Mm. Do you reflect on that period where you had the fall out with him and think, actually, you know what? There was a value
1: for everyone in that. Best thing that ever happened to both of us. Why? Because I wanted to be in his shoes and you can't be in issues. They're too big. And I knew I couldn't fill them. And I think for me, it was, I had another ambition. I had another goal. And so I had to try, I became an individual in a very big company. That company, when this, when that happened, um, I was part of hundreds and hundreds of chefs. Yes, I was still the first employee, but I, I became the, the whole thing. The company became bigger and bigger and bigger, and I could see that I was a fish in a pond, but I wasn't the biggest fish in the pond. And so, you have to identify where do you want to go, what do you want to do, and I had to I had to change. I had to it's interesting decisions.
0: you say that because I think that what I've heard from you all the way through this conversation is I didn't have a plan, didn't really have a route, but I just worked hard, mm. and it feels like suddenly. With this fallout with Gordon, you it was suddenly didn't become about the hard work because if it was, you'd have said, "I'll just work hard for the next five years, I'll be there." Whereas it was almost like now I now I want that. So I wonder whether something changed within you. at uh,
1: Yeah, one an ego. Well, or... three three things changed, or three things that changed yeah. it, and, and it's called Jake, Archie, and Jesse. And that while I was having that fallout, they were at home in bed. And so you have to have a plan. Your children. Your children. Oh, you have to. Have, you, you bring that. You bring anyone into the world. And you 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 you, ha- and you start scratching the surface of doing things differently. You have to be very confident that you can continue and 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 give them the security that you that, that you want to. And cookery can be so you can be one thing one minute and nothing the next. You can be dropped at any t- any given time from a kitchen. So as this company was getting bigger, and I felt like it wasn't about me anymore. It was about big things. I wanted to go back to that being an individual again, and so I had to find a way out to be the individual, and I was becoming one of many and I didn't like it.
3: So this is the first time where where you, that you're actually following in your father's footsteps in many ways of becoming a father, so you've gone into a different industry and you've taken his counsel as you're navigating your way through, through that industry, but now you're a dad like he was to you and your siblings. How much of it was driven by the idea of wanting to be independent like you'd seen your father doing to to facilitate that fallout?
1: No one facilitated anything in a fallout. It naturally happened. And it's, it, you know, that guy stood next to me on my wedding day. So big player in my life, big player. And I, and, I, and I love the guy to pieces. I still do admire him. I think he's a great guy. I watch him on TV. I see what he's done. You know what, guys, the day I met him, I knew where he was going. He was always, yeah, television, restaurants, the whole thing. That guy never, you know, Gordon never wanted to, he was always incredibly ambitious and I love that, but I couldn't do it if I was in the same camp. And so I had to go and find my own road. And so I did that. And I think it's my own family, my own family values that drove me to do that, going back to where I started. And sometimes I still do go back to where I started. I still reflect on, you know, where I come from. I love where I come from, but I don't want to go back there.
0: Do you think maybe you were too similar as well? Too very driven, very single-minded?
1: Similar, similar, but very different. Yeah. You know, we had some great times, you know, and great memories, and I wouldn't change them for anything. And I think, you know, there's highs and lows
0: throughout this whole thing. I wonder whether the biggest high was your first Michelin star. Did you feel validated at that point, like the whole journey and all the difficult times were worth
1: it? Or are you the kind of person who straight away wanted a second star or... I'm not a glory chaser, and the chefs that are constantly chasing glory never, ever reach it, in my opinion, because they're too busy distracted. I've seen chefs in my kitchen, head chefs and sous chefs, that just spent time on their phones looking. What about the customer? What about the plate in front of you? And that relationship always ends badly for that particular chef.
0: Would you have been just as happy with all the focus, all the effort, all the desire that you put in, but not sitting here as a michelin star chef? Would you, would you feel like you didn't get the recognition
1: that you deserved. No, it no. really. I got more recognition than I expected, you know. And as when I won that Michelin Star 25, I never expected that to happen. So why did it happen? Because of my training. So coming back from Paris and opening a restaurant to Laurent and six months later, I am given this accolade, and one of the biggest accolades you can get in in, in food. Um, I know. If, you know. I remember the phone call. It was the same day Gordon won two stars. So it was a complete double celebration, complete massive celebration. Um, but yet. I just felt that the guide had just dumped a huge bag on my shoulder and I had to go to work with it every day. And that was fine. I will dealt with that. But I became very worried about maintaining that, that at that age. So I became that tough character, that individual again, that I'm running a kitchen and, and I'm focused on everything. I'm looking under every post-it note now. So I, even get, I become even more obsessed with perfection. Uh, and that's when the voice and, and, and my, you know, my voice was raised and that's where I became not quite the same person that I entered that kitchen and I needed to do something about that. And that was I had to focus on that person, you know, in that mirror of that, you need to change, mate, or you're just going to hit a brick wall if you're not careful, a brick wall of just yourself. And so I did that because it was that, you know, it, you know, it was outlined to me, outlined that you need to change your ways, your management skills need to change. Who by? Gordon of all people. What did he say? You're destroying yourself. You're destroying yourself. You're destroying your business, my business, his business. Uh, and if you're not, if you, if you're not careful, it'll, it'll, you'll hit a brick wall, mate. And that was the good thing about Gordon. You know, he'd come over after service, never in service. After he'd finished his service, we'd sit, we'd have a glass of wine or a cup of tea and we'd go over things. But that conversation could be 20 minutes or it could be two, three hours. We could be sitting there until three or four o'clock in the morning and just having a chat that was a lovely, that was one of the lovely things about Gordon for me was that he always gave you his time, always. And all he ever wanted you to do was to succeed because my success was his success at the same time. So when you had that, did you instigate the fallout that happened or did he? I don't think it was. I think it was something that just naturally happened. And it's quite hard to explain how, who I yeah. instigated because I wasn't dealing with Gordon. I was dealing with the company. You know, it'd become a company then. Gordon was off doing TV. I think he was already working in America at that point on television. So it was never Gordon. This is the whole thing. Everyone thinks it was me and Gordon. It was never me and Gordon. It was me and a company that happened to be owned by him. That was the difference. Yeah.
0: Maybe you were expecting him to step up and be Gordon and come
1: to you and say, look, forget about the company, chef to chef, let's sort this out. Didn't happen. Would you have liked it to have happened? I would, yeah. Yeah. At that time, yeah, I would. I probably would have taken that hands down. Yeah. But I would never go back and change what's happened. Don't want to change anything. Still to
0: come on this conversation with Chef Marcus Waring.
1: I don't want to stop. I still want to be a high achiever. And I still want to be a high performer in, in everything that I do. And I admire the schools that they go to and I love their education. But I never had it. I left school with nothing. I couldn't tell you what I've got as a qualification. But I left at 15
2: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role,
0: like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
3: What did you change about your management style then that you were doing
1: that you changed? I, stayed, I stayed the same for years and years and years and years until I stepped into one brand new arena that I think probably changed me, the, my life again. My life has changed in many different ways. Um, and that's when I got invited to replace Michelle Roux on Masterchef and walking onto the set of you know, Masterchef, um, the lady that brought me onto, onto the show. Um, there's a few things that I learned from it was that I wanted to know who was who was in the firing line, who was going to be up for this job. And every man and chef and woman and you know that wanted to be on television applied for that opportunity. I remember reading the caterer, our, our, our industry magazine, Michel Roux had just you know, left MasterChef for whatever reason. And I thought to myself, right there and then, <clears throat> that's going to be the one of the hottest jobs in in television in my world and that everyone's going to apply for it. And I didn't think twice. I didn't even think about applying because I know that I was the, the outspoken, sweary chef that would never get a look in on that. So I deleted it. I thought to myself, that would have been a nice gig, which it's not quite for me. Um, probably a month, month or so later, I got a call um, from one of the producers who said, Marcus, is there any opportunity that I could just come and have a chat to you? And it was on the t- I was at the time where I'd just been on my own now for five years of running a business on my own and I was just relaunching my restaurant. I'd just refurbished it and I was just about to open the restaurant. So I cleared my diary for six months She said, and she said, Karen said, can I come and see you? I said, yeah, but you're going to come, you have to come this week. She said, I can come now if you want. Come, come around. She came with David Ambler, the the, the, the executive producer, and sat down. She said, look, I'm just going to come straight out with this. Would you be happy to replace Michel Rion or on MasterChef Professionals? Oh. And I sat there. Path, my face didn't change. Inside, I was like, Doing oh cartwheels. my God. That's just not what I expected. And you, you could have knocked me over. Why did that mean so much to you? Because it wasn't... Me, the the chef that I am and the was, the the aggression, my what people thought about me, read about me. I don't fit Master Chef. That's PC. So you have to be correct. she said she said, You want you to do two things for me when you go on set. There's no script, we can't tell you what to do. It is what it is. Smile and don't swear.
3: See, but what intrigues me on this, Marcus, is that you're somebody that loves food. And yet something like Master Chef is then it's taking you into a world that's not just about the food, it's about image, it's about the fame and all the other things that come from it
1: it was never about fame it was about a show that i watched when i was a boy lloyd grossman the red kitchen the blue kitchen and the yellow kitchen yeah i loved the show take six cooks with the other show that that was out there at that time in the 80s and Michel roux took the same concept to a professional level and he'd done it for seven years so he'd already laid the foundation and all i needed to do was just step in and be me uh but i didn't realize that it would actually come my way and so what it taught me was to speak differently because if you're talking to a chef, you're actually not talking to the chef, who well, you are, but you're actually getting you're telling the viewer what all about the dish, what it tastes like, why it's good, why it's bad, what are the pros, what are the cons. So as I'm talking to you, the chef, about the dish you've just cooked, I'm also telling the viewer as to the reasons to my thinking. And by doing that, I stopped raising my voice. Right. I stopped getting upset because the chef hadn't cooked a great dish because it's irrelevant to me. There's a great, it's a good, good dish or a bad dish. What I've got in front of me is something I need to explain and I need to do it without any bad language. So as I went through that process and I'd go back after service, I started to become this new person. And so I started right. to communicate with the chefs in front of me the same way as I did on set. And the response I got from them was unbelievable. And they couldn't quite believe what was happening, that Marcus is smiling in a kitchen. <laughs> hey, it's, you must never, ever be afraid to continue learning and you must never be afraid to change. And if there's something better and you can become better at something, yeah, I'll take some of that. And so do you now regret those years you went through of
0: frowning and shouting and being belligerent and difficult and people saying to you, you've got to change, you're going to burn out. Do you wish you'd had this epiphany 20 years ago?
1: No, because I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't have got there. I needed that. That was my energy. That was my petrol in my car. That's what drove me, and you know what? Every now and again, that 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 can come back. By the way, it's not gone forever. I, I've done a TV show, as you know, recently, and uh, I'm in a garden. I'm with farmers, and I'm growing, and I'm doing things that people can't relate to me. They look at me and think that's what was he doing? Um, but put a chef jacket on, and it's like putting a you know, it's like putting a uniform on. It's like putting a shirt on a football pitch. It's like putting an army putting their uniform on, and polishing it, it's looking immaculate. So there is a chef in there, but there's also you know, someone who actually does enjoy the outside life now, because my children have shown me there's a whole new world out there, and I like that. The you know, the family are really important to me, and they are showing me new things, meeting people, families, going out, going to the, going to the the football matches, the rugby matches, and and being part of a whole new thing. And I admire the schools that they go to, and I love their education. But I never had it. I left school with nothing. I couldn't tell you what I've got as a qualification. But I left at fifteen.
3: I wanted to ask you about that point you were talking about, MasterChef, of educating viewers in terms of the process of of cooking and food. One of my favourite terms is people that are ultra-crepidarians, which means that people that have an opinion on something they know very little about. Now, you're educating some people that want to be educated, but you're also at the whims of people that have an opinion on food without understanding the process or even wanting to know it. How do you deal with criticism from people like that that come into, whether it's your restaurants or see you on TV?
1: Criticism is important. But when you put 35, 34 years into what I've done, and if you know more than me, I might take on board what you've got to say. But I also realise that you ha- you, everybody's entitled to an opinion, and I'll accept that opinion. Um, I have my own view. and So when I'm a master chef, I only give my own personal view about how I see something. But I've got a lot of work behind me to back up what I'm saying so if you can match that I'm happy to listen but more often than not you know people always sometimes do get things wrong television is about you go home you sit on your couch and you put the telly on you listen to what I've got to say or what someone else has got to say but I'm not sat on my couch I'm out doing my thing I think that's the difference it's easy to to criticize from a couch
3: but what about when they come into your restaurant and uh, like a critic to give you an appraisal? And... That's
1: a whole new ball game. Go on, tell us about that then. Well, critics, they say are the same thing, but they write with the general aspect of their, that it's their opinion, but they're writing it on behalf of the nation. Well, they're not. They're writing it on behalf of themselves. And if you can remind yourself of that, then whatever's written is just words. And what I love about the world we live in today is that we can now create our own words through social media so we can talk about our own story. So whatever's written, you can counteract that by good positivity. And that's the key. Stay positive. We tend to navigate into always the negativity of everything in life and not focus on the positivity. Food critics were legends at pulling people to pieces. I hate bullies. I've always hated bullies. Um, I, I used to go around the playground and see bullies. And I always had my say in what I thought of a bully. And I think sometimes when people hide behind a pen, I just think it's wrong. Say it with respect write it with respect yeah give due bad good and bad there's there's ways of writing things um and but sometimes i think critics have gone too far and i think that social media is taking that away from them now and that's a good thing
0: you know i'm getting this sort of overwhelming impression that you're in a new phase of your life you know you had the phase of the young guy growing up and then you had those early days in the in the kitchens where you were learning a lot then you were the man in charge and by your own admission went too far and made some mistakes. Yeah. And now you are on the television and it sort of feels like a, we're, in the, we're in a new era now. So what what are your ambitions now? What are your dreams now? My
1: ambition now uh, is to
0: become a better cook. Even better?
1: Ah, yes, better cook. Never stop. So never. What,
0: what do you think you're not good
1: at when it comes to cooking? I don't know where food comes from. Um, I never talked to suppliers. I never went to see a farmer, a supplier. The only pair of people I ever used to see was going to Preston Liverpool Market or going to the farmers in the northwest. So when I went when I went into kitchens, there were just people at the end of the phone. If I don't like what you bring to my kitchen, I'll send it back, and you can get you can get me some more. So there was a lack of respect there. And I bought a place four and a half years ago in East Sussex that happened to have a kitchen garden on it and sixty five acres of land, and that the farmer looked after the cows and the sheep on it. So what I did was I bought the place um, and didn't realise where I was going to where I was going to go with it. So for, it was a second home for me. Um, because my children go to school down there in in Tombridge. And I started to uncover this incredible thing that I'd never thought I'd ever have in my life, which is a kitchen garden, 11 beehives and an apple pear orchard that had plum trees in the corner, had grapevines over the other side. It had a pond with with, with ducks on it. Um, And there's a field next door with, with sheep and cows on. And I started to see a whole new world of my world. I started to see my world in a completely different way. And it excited me. And seeing food from the soil up, rather than from the back door of a kitchen up, I saw a whole new opportunity. It just puts a smile on my face because I absolutely love going there. And the minute those gates open and I drive through, London is dumped at the gate and doesn't come through ever. You know what I would like to learn
0: from you is... um, is facing problems head on. Like I'm a prevaricator. If there's a phone call I don't want to make or a conversation that's awkward that I don't want to have, or I always imagine it's going to be worse than it is. Yet the way you say, if you bring me something I don't like, I send it back. If you don't deliver some food to the past that I like, it goes back. What advice would you give to people for facing those difficult conversations head on? Because as a chef, you would have had to have them
1: hour by hour. In the olden days, head on. Smash through it. There's a very good friend of mine once, David Nichols, whose son unfortunately had a really bad accident where he, he broke his neck and he's been paralyzed from neck down for, for for many, many years now. And he helped me through some really tough times. And he was across the road at the Mandarin Oriental and I was over at the Barclay. And I would call him for some some guidance and advice. And I don't know why I did. It was when I was going through my tough three years at the at, 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 at Gordon's place. And when I knew him through his charity, the Nichols Foundation, which is about research and development of stem cell, I'm trying to get people walking again. I mean, walking when I mean, you're paralyzed, there's, there's a mountain that would be difficult to climb, but he's doing it. And so, Chef, the industry came together to write cookbooks and raise money and do, do events. And so, I used to go and speak to him. And he said, Marcus, your reputation, everyone knows all about you. You react instantly. He said, Can I give you some advice? If you sleep on the problem, I guarantee the next day you'll wake up with a different view. I thought, ho, ho, what a cracking piece of advice. While you're angry, you'll make a decision, but it won't always be the right decision. And I still live by that today. Great piece of advice. So can you give us an
3: example of where you've applied that and you've seen positive effects?
1: from it? Every day. I get hit with those phone calls. I get hit with those problems. If I think I'm in the right mood, catch me on the wrong day. I have to have to I have to take that advice and I have to sleep on it. And so I use it all the time in my day-to-day life. And I've I've decided that now moving forward post COVID surrounding myself with a whole group of new people that are not from my old and not from my past so that they can take me forward and so that I can move forward in a in a in a different different zone. Trying to drive away from the problem rather than hit the problem head on and deal with it later but with a completely different view. In my head, everything is very straightforward. But sometimes when you, you talk about it, it can, f- c- can sound complex and different and detailed. We're talking to 36 years here, guys. You know, that's a long, long, long time. I'm, but I'm 51 with 20 more years in front of me. Yeah. What am I going to do now?
3: But even that there, like you, you're presenting that in in a very matter of fact way that I've got people around me and I'm learning new things. And yet you do have 36 years of experience that you fall back on. And that is quite a difficult skill to learn to embrace new challenges.
1: So how are you doing that? I don't think I can work in a kitchen day to day anymore. Right. But I love my food. I love my job. So I want to go out and work in new industries. I've written eight cookbooks. I've worked on MasterChef coming up for my eighth year. I've just done my first series. I'm going to Australia to film for a month to discover food of Australia later on in the year. I want to go and enter into other people's worlds. You know, you may find this quite surprising. You know, there was, was one person who I used to watch a lot of, and I'm going to get shot for saying this, and I'm a Liverpool fan. It was Alex Ferguson. What was it about him? Dealing with the best. Hidden problems. He's the boss. And in the, in the 90s, when Liverpool weren't the is, I find myself watching Manchester United because they were winners and they had a manager that was beyond anyone else. And he just made serious decisions and you read, you know, you'd read the media and you'd hear the way he does things. He's non-compromised with the best talent. What you sack, you sack Roy Keane because he spoke out. That is quite serious when you see that. You look at things like that, that's a big decision. But to be the best, you've got to make big decisions. You've got to make decisions that are unpopular. And and that's what I learned by watching people like him. So
3: someone like Ferguson would have said that his first decision was, does does this benefit Manchester United? And if the answer's yes, well, let's make the decision. If it doesn't, we're not making it. What's your criteria then for for decision making?
1: I think back in the olden days, it was about how how I benefited. now I have to look at the bigger picture of how I can protect where I'm going, which is protect everything I'm now part of. I can't go onto the set of master chef effing and jeffing. I can't write a book and write just what I like or write the words I like. It's got to be, it's got to fit in the modern world. It's got to fit in what people are looking for. And so what I've realized is where in the olden days I couldn't give a shit what people thought of me now to be, for me to be able to succeed, I have to be very conscious of what people think of me and what people see. And so I've got to become. A different person and I have to change the way I look at what I do and who what I say and how I approach things you don't go through that level of cooking and those hours of 16 hour days five six days a week not that's hard to change that concept it's hard to get out of the, that mindset I often find myself speaking sometimes in the third person like that was someone else it's quite odd and I get you know people laugh at me or people can, can, can make a joke about it but it's only as you reflect on what you've done that you start to realise that you can become more than just what you are and who you are. And you have to think about the long-term future. I don't want to retire. I don't want to stop. I still want to be a high achiever and I still want to be a high performer in, in everything that I do. Tells me Kitchen Garden, the show that I made, um, was, was a show that took me into people's back gardens and to meet from some fantastic farmers who are unsung heroes of my industry and all i ever wanted to do was shine some light on these beautiful people and what they produce because they're all small arts and suppliers walking to masterchef and finding the next generation of chefs and finding unsung talent unsung heroes is quite special and the reason why i say that about masterchef is because the 30 odd chefs or 48 that used to walk on set they're not the future they're lost a little bit lost in some sense is that they're not sure who they are they don't know whether they're good, they're bad. Their bosses may not say whether they can good cooks. So they're not getting trained. Well, someone enters them into a competition to see who am I? And they come on set scared, stiff. And our job is to carry them through the journey of MasterChef. So 48 chefs walk on set. We only, we all know there's one trophy. What about the other 37? The key is to make sure that those 37 go home feeling what an amazing experience. I didn't win and I learned some things about myself. And I've got things to change and to build on. That's a good thing. That's what I love about MasterChef, is that you find that next. There's a jewel in there. That jewel will never come out unless it went through that story, went through that journey, the journey that I've been on in many different areas. And that's what I love, the fact that we step on set and three months later, we've got some different people at the end.
3: So when you're recognising these talents, that are coming on MasterChef or you're going into the different environments. How much of what you're looking at is down to their actually culinary skills and how much of it is down to mindset and coachability and attitude? If my, you had to give a proportion.
1: Well, my job in there is I'm a link in a chain and I've got a job to do. I don't teach them how to cook on MasterChef. What I'm giving them is culinary advice. And they'll su- to succeed on MasterChef, listen to the judges. You're getting educated on the go, we are telling you the rights and wrongs of your dishes. If you take that information and absorb that and move that onto, if you get through to your next dish, if you start to build on that, you, we're actually educating you as you, go, as you go along. And it's only the ones that take the criticism and build on it that succeed. And do you know where the Eureka, the best moment is, and I say this to, to the chefs, especially when we get down to the, the final fives and sixes, is you have no idea what you've done until you sit and see yourself on the television. If you think about it, these chefs, don't know where they're going or work in some pretty normal kitchens, and one month or three, four, five, six months down the line, they turn the tally on and they see themselves cooking. They see the way they speak. They look at what to the, hear what the judges are saying. You get to see their family reaction. They've got their loved ones around them. That'll be the proudest moment. Even in failure, they feel incredibly proud, and that's a life changing experience for those chefs. That enter one of the toughest competitions in Cookery, and I admire that. Um,
0: we always end with some quickfire questions, and the first one is your three non-negotiables, and these may well be very different to what you would have said 20 years ago, your three non-negotiables that you and the people
1: around you need to buy into. I'm not going to change. I am what I am. Don't ask me to stop work. I don't think I've got a third. I, I don't think, think I can two, answer those that. Two are strong.
3: What advice would you give to a teenage Marcus in Southport just starting out?
1: Don't change. How important is legacy to you? Only to my family. Not to you? I've not thought about me. I only want. I only care about what my family think of me.
3: If you could go back to one moment in your life, what would it be and why?
1: I think I'd go back to almost starting high school and just ask the question to the teachers as to why you let so many people like me slip through the net. Because as I look back, I think there's so many young people out there in the world, in, in, in our country, that miss out on... on proper school proper education and and it just they just they just go through the net and I think education is one of the most important things it's something that I do never I never ever let my children feel that they can slip through any net it's not it's not going to happen and I wish I could go back and, and change that because I think education is so important and I and I feel that they I didn't get that I'd like to know what lesson
0: from everything that you've done and all the experiences you've had, what are the lessons that you're
1: passing on to your children at this stage? Never look back in regret, um, never look back and wish, oh, I wish I'd tried a bit harder at that exam, or I wish I'd tried harder at the football pitch. Your position as a young person for me is, is, is really important that when you, whatever you do, whatever you're in, make sure you stand out from the crowd. I'm very open with my kids. When we sat around the dinner table, it's mum, dad, Jake, Arch, Jesse. There's not a TV personality. There's not a head chef, not an author. It's just dad having a conversation. And I've got more in my arsenal of experience than my children. And I'd like to think that they will take on board and listen to what I've got to say. Because there's one thing in life you cannot buy, and that's experience. You have to live it. And it's the one thing I say to them all the time. Never, ever turn around at the end of something and think, I wish, no chance.
3: One of our favourite phrases on the podcast, Marcus, is about world-class basics. It's what Surya McGeegan said, created a test match animal. What are your own world-class basics?
1: I I can't help but go back to to, to the basics, my family value, my father's family value, which is just work and give it everything. I used to go home every afternoon when I was at Catering College Um, and I study and study and study and study. I learned everything and I came top in every exam I ever did from being nothing at school to top and winning competitions in theory told me that you can do anything if you put your mind to it.
0: And, um, your final message for people that are listening to this or watching it on YouTube, um, is your one golden rule to living a high performance life. I suppose in many ways, what's the the final message you'd like to leave ringing in the ears of the people that, that have tuned into this episode?
1: I think you have to be reflective of what you want in life and set the goals that you know that you can reach, that you, that you know you're going to have to work hard to get to. I think it's really important that you don't dream too much and that you have to be realistic about your own individual capabilities and do not be distracted by one of the biggest distractions that we all have. It's in our hands. It's called an iPhone. That is the dangerous thing to have because that thing there shows you more you need to know and it's the biggest distraction what a great conversation
0: damien jake how do i react to that episode i really really enjoyed it what i really enjoyed is that i think we're speaking to a different marcus Waring than 20 or 30 years ago there's there's small moments in the conversation where his bluntness and his clarity comes out when you say you know what's the secret work hang around with shite you'll be shite you know those moments. And you can imagine that he would have been a hard guy to work with and be around at one point in his career. And I love the fact that he's a story for everyone listening to this podcast that you're not fixed. You can be a hugely successful chef. And then the very thing that made you successful, you can change to be successful in a different way, in a different part of your life.
3: Brilliant point. It really reminded me of um, a fantastic book called The Second Mountain. By David Brooks, that speaks about the first mountain we climb in life is often ego driven. We want to get to the top, we want to be the best, very much like what Marcus was talking about. But a few people make that transition to the second mountain where they say, actually, it's about helping others. It's about being part of a bigger story. It's about making a difference in a community and connecting. And I think that was the really interesting bit for me. I was now made that transition of shining a light on farmers or helping young lost chefs and trying to make a difference for his industry. Um, I thought that was really fascinating and goes back to the idea that he's not fixed on on one destination. He's had the wherewithal and the self-awareness to change.
0: And look, there are other podcasts and other outlets that chase headlines and look for the salacious conversation and you know, use the whole, all the clickbait stuff. So we didn't want to go especially deep on the whole conversation about Gordon Ramsay and the fallout. But actually it was a fascinating part of that conversation where we didn't need to go any deeper because it was absolutely clear that you can have a fallout with someone, you can have a disagreement, you can go your separate ways, but you can both grow from that moment happening. And instead of dwelling on it and talking about it and generating some daft headline that goes on some website, the best thing to say is it was fine for the both of us. Horrible at the time, but what's hard for you isn't always bad for you.
3: Yeah, you can disagree without being disagreeable. And I think that was a really good example of it between Gordon and Marcus, how they were both at a different place in their lives or heading off in slightly different directions. And it doesn't make either of them right or wrong, which is not what we're looking for. It's what what did you take from it, learn from it, and apply from it.
0: It It's fantastic. And in his honour for dinner, I'm going to have some lightly toasted bread with a (laughs) smattering of beans that have been baked, with a lightly grated dusting of cheese, and a side helping of coleslaw. It's my favourite meal.
3: It is cheese on beans with coleslaw. <laughs> you've got a career as a marketer, <laughs> uh, if this ever goes wrong.
0: Thanks for your time, mate. Thanks, mate. Loved it. Hello, Mark. Hi. This is actually our favourite part of the podcast where we get to speak to people like you that listen and enjoy. So you sent us a message to say you've finally uh, finished your first full Ironman. You did it in Hamburg. First and last. Yeah, <laughs> You said 1207 is not world beating, but as a greying 54-year-old, I feel pretty proud. Um, can you explain to us why the High Performance Podcast was was part of your training or your learning or your mindset for...
4: Yeah, well, I, I was meant to do this a, a year ago, and obviously with the pandemic, it got moved, so that gave me an extra year of stepping up and down the pool and, and, and running away and getting on the bike and doing the miles on the bike. So, so I found the podcast, actually, over the last two years, I've been listening... Just a, a great help partly to just to give you something else to think about while you, you're doing the, the miles but there's some really good bits here, you know, and, and one i mentioned actually in the message i sent to you guys that you're josh warrington obviously you know fellow yorkshireman whilst i'm not a boxer i'm not a fighter i'm not particularly aggressive he had this a great line was quite a bit thrower actually when i listened back to it when he was saying eventually when you get in the ring and it's just you and the other guy at some point you're just going to throw the punches and that really stuck in my head and those times when you're on the bike and you're grinding away i just found that really great little line that just kept coming back to me on race day when you're you're schlepping around that really you know the, the dark moments where you're thinking you know i really want to stop now that really sort of resonated in my head and it was, it was a good little
3: thing brilliant so tell us about those dark moments because that always intrigues me that, that you've volunteered to do this, haven't you? That this is something that you've chosen to give up two years of your life to dedicate to it. And I'm interested in those dark moments. Like, How, like how did you get through them?
4: Yeah, it's really because people say, yeah, did you enjoy it? And I, and I, I don't know, I was speaking at Phil. I don't know that you can enjoy nine Ironman in the moment because it is, it's hard work. You know, it's 3.8km of a swim and then 180km on a bike and then you've got to run a marathon at the end of it. I think it's the marathon that's the, they're really tough because you, by then you've done a number of hours, and we all know how long a marathon is. And there's no, there's <laughs> no getting away from that. Um, so there's definitely a little voice in there saying it's time to stop. And, and also, the, on, on the day, the thing that surprised me just how many people do actually end up walking the marathon because they just yeah they just run out of steam. But I think I don't know, I think with age comes a bit of stubbornness maybe as well. I mean, I I've joked about being fifty-four. I don't know if I could have done this when I was 34 because I don't. And then you may be a bit too competitive. Whereas as you get older, it's not the. I'm, I wasn't competing against anyone else. I wasn't trying to break any record. You know, in my age group, I came a 139th out of 250. You know, I'm never going to be on the podium. But that stubbornness just, you know, you just want to get it done. And I think, you know, there was another uh, takeaway as well from the podcast of Mel Marshall. You know, she talked about her. Uh, uh, in a balance that and everyone's very different, you know, how you approach your training, you know, how much time you can afford to commit to it. And she also talks about, you know, when she t- trains people, obviously, you know, we're on the Adam Petey, he's you know she's training him to be winning the gold medal and being on top of the podium. But she also trains other people that to find what is their own personal Olympics. And, and that was very much the, the case with me with the Iron Man. I was never going to be on the podium, the time is never going to be that impressive compared to other people doing it. But for me, that was my sort of gold medal. And I think that was yeah, an important thing to just remember on the day that just you yeah, know, race your race, stick to your plan and with a bit of luck, get across the finish line.
3: So if there was one lesson then that you would pass on to your kids, having experienced um, both listening to the podcast and doing an Ironman, what's that one message, What your one golden rule, Mark?
4: Well, I think the the one you talk about those world class basics. I mean, yeah, it, it it can seem sort of throwaway, but but that really is that, isn't it? You know, the basics in across all forms of life. You know, and when you talk about those, you know, your, your, your three
3: non-negotiables.
4: Exactly, yeah. A, a lot of that was, you know, again, it's very easy just to sort of, you know, say them as throwaway comments. But I think if you do, you know, things like passion, integrity, respect, that people often come up with, they do they across all all parts of life not just your your performance when it comes to a sport or anything but I think in everyday life those things are really important and it's such a a mad world we live in there's such a lot of noise thrown at you that it's easy to forget those things sometimes
0: thank you so much Mark for taking the time and, and coming and chatting to us cheers gents Well, I really hope you enjoyed that. If you want to hear more from High Performance, or should I say see more from High Performance, then you can check us out on YouTube. Join the tens of thousands of subscribers on there. As well as that, we also have our Members Club. Now, I'm really passionate about this. We've just had a whole conversation with Marcus about passion. Let me just be really clear. We have something called the High Performance Circle. We want no money from you to be a member of the High Performance Circle. And in return for you giving us no money at all, we are going to give you keynote speeches. We'll give you high performance boosts. We'll give you book recommendations. We'll give you information about what we're doing on high performance before anybody else hears it. We will just give you more from high performance. If you want to join our club for free, all you need to do is go to thehighperformancepodcast.com. Click on the circle. You'll get an invite and you're in the club. As always, I can't thank you enough for growing and sharing this podcast among your community. Uh, We actually had some research sent back to us recently that that said that well over 90% of people get to this point on the podcast, they get to the very end of the podcast. And that really means a great deal to us. It means that people are coming, they're enjoying, they're learning, they're growing. And they're sticking with it and please 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 if there's one thing that you can do to support us more than anything else it's just to spread the learnings you're taking from this series i don't mind how or where you do it or even when you do it just mention it to one person just one person, it may all well change their lives. Thanks as always to the team behind the podcast, um, Damien, of course, but also Finn, Hannah, Will, Eve, Gemma, and everyone else helping this podcast to be what it is. Remember, for you, listening to this, there is no secret. It is all there for you. Be passionate like you've heard from Marcus today. Chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Most importantly, remain humble, curious, and empathetic. And we'll see you very soon.